0: good morning derek good morning ben and good morning penelope
1: good morning ben and derek welcome back welcome back i'm so happy to be here
2: it's great to have you here i just uh re-listened to the last episode that you were on uh and it was so good i got inspired all over again like i went (laughs) and like wrote down some things which is like oh i forgot we talked about that and that's such a good idea so i do actually recommend people check that out as well because that was just a, a great episode
1: and very strongly, I received just, uh, like, love bombs for, like, months after we recorded that. I would have people just randomly reach out to me and be like, this episode of Art of Product was... know it was, like, two months later, and I was like, wow, people are still picking up on this, and people seem to really enjoy it. And I think, like, popping the hood on Stripe a little bit was really interesting to folks, right? And so, yeah, happy to be back and, and tell more stories, I guess.
2: That was totally my intention with that, was, like... It seems like there's some really interesting things happening, some unique things. It's hard to argue with the results. I just didn't see that many people talking publicly from Stripe in detail, especially from the engineering side about what was going on. Like I, I had gleaned some small things here and there from interviews and whatnot. But I'm actually curious, like, so I think you had to get permission from like your PR department to do this interview. Like, it seems like the information is somewhat controlled and for like public dissemination. What's that like?
1: Actually doing this second one was somewhat easier than doing the first one. The approval, you may enjoy this for this podcast was a email to Patio 11, who for the purposes of PR for sort of like friendly podcasts, Patrick is currently working on brand communications and so like is able to approve that sort of thing. Yeah, brand comms and talent comms. And so I mean, we are a non-trivially sized company, and so being careful about our PR stance is very important, and especially given just, like, the industry we're in, right? Because we touch everyone's revenue, and because we touch everyone's revenue, we have to be somewhat careful about what we say in public, right?
2: It's funny how how small the world is. I've randomly developed a relationship with Patrick over the years through MicroConf and Twitter and, and whatnot. And uh, now it's, it's finally paying off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Patrick is great. That's awesome. I assume that means like the default then is like you probably shouldn't make public statements much about internal Stripe stuff unless you've talked to somebody.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like very much from basically the beginning, the messaging is like, well, it's OK to talk about smaller or specific things like we don't, for example, say Stripe's opinion on X is Y right? Like, all all of those things are channeled through, like, more official brand and PR folks. I actually can't speak too much to that side of the house at all, simply because I'm not really involved in it. Something like this, where, you know, we're reaching engineers and product-minded people, it's not so much a discussion about, like, Stripe's stance on whatever's going on in the world, right? It's, like, my lived experience of being a Stripe. So that's uh, certainly a much less guarded forum.
2: This might get like radioactive fast, so just say the word. But I, I remember reading, I think, it, I, I think it was a Stripe job posting. There was like a why you might not want to work here section. And one of the things was like, regardless of who you voted for, if you voted in the last U.S. presidential election, we process tons of payments for the other side. And that's just like, that's kind of our, our stance. We're decidedly, I guess, neutral on this. And you have to be okay with that.
1: I can't speak too much to what our policies in terms of who we will process for look like apart from to say that my understanding is it's does its level best to be an apolitical process i really can't get too far into this yeah
2: Yeah. very fair let's maybe pop over to things that you could maybe talk more (laughs) about directly (laughs) yeah of course For, for better radio perhaps so i'm actually curious what was your interview like your hiring process like
1: sure so the stripe interview process is completely standardised for the overwhelming majority of engineers. It varies slightly if you're coming in as a university candidate, and it varies slightly depending on whether or not you are mostly going to be working on front-end stuff or mostly going to be working on back-end stuff. But so every engineer who is hired at Stripe below the staff engineering level will go through what's called a team screen, which is basically a 45-minute programming exercise i'm in fact doing one of these later today where we present a problem to a candidate and we see if they can code against it right and you know it's it's not a sort of like google style reverse of binary tree on a whiteboard kind of interview it is very much like real-world coding. In fact, in my sort of wind-up, I say, feel free to Google stuff, feel free to use third-party libraries, you should write unit tests to demonstrate this is correct, right? We want to see how you actually program. We conduct those uh, interviews in broadly any programming language. That is, the exercises are set up to be programming language neutral, right? And then if you pass the team screen, you come to a on-site interview where you would We'll do a handful of uh, programming interviews, a design interview, and an interview with the hiring manager on the team you're on. The interview with the hiring manager is called Experiences and Goals. And the the basic idea is to kind of uh, tell a narrative story around your career so far, and then talk about why Stripe, why now, why this team, those sorts of things. One interview type I will highlight, because I think it's really interesting and somewhat unique to Stripe, uh, is an interview we have that's called the Bug Squash. And basically, the way we set Bug Squash interviews up is we take open source repositories, we find a bug fix that has been applied to them, we revert it out while keeping the tests, and then we basically ask the candidate to sort of look through the code base and try to identify where the bug might be, how to fix it. Uh, how even to, as far as how they might write a commit message uh, if they get that far into it. So we can see, like, do you truly understand the problem here? What would you say to the maintainer of this code base? Um, but also, can you effectively navigate and debug through a code base in your chosen language? And we have bug squashes for materially any programming language that somebody might be interviewing in. We use those as a very strong calibration of, like, does this person really know the, the language they're working in?
2: Hmm. I'm I'm getting third-party anxiety over remembering like live coding interviews uh-huh. and the pressure that's there.
1: Uh huh. Well, Ben, to be fair, you did live code in front of audiences of hundreds of people for like several years in a row. So like, you did seem to enjoy it.
2: <laughs> that was a tightly c- controlled environment. It, it is interesting to hear that the sort of dominant assessment technique is programming under pressure i would say as opposed to some sort of take-home approach
1: yeah my view on this is it's to be respectful of the candidate's time we do uh, team screen is an hour of your time and then your on-site is i think it's six or seven hours of interviews and then and then you're done when i interviewed at stripe this was uh right before the pandemic uh kicked in actually they flew me out to the the san francisco office and um uh, I think from start of interview process to done, it was like less than two weeks, which was super impressive. Actually, I was I was extremely impressed by how quickly our recruiters were able to execute on like pushing me through the pipeline.
2: Sounds like, yeah, a focus on speed is is consistent throughout the company.
1: One of our operating principles is fast.
2: <laughs> it's just just the word fast. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, Just the word fast. We talked about this uh, last time.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. So what is a staff engineer then? It seems like there's like a bright line between that and other engineering roles.
1: Yeah, so this is a, a level that is like not uncommon in larger software organizations, right? Stripe has a staff engineer designation, so does Facebook and Google and Net- like many of these companies do, right? As well as peers like Shopify and uh, Zendesk, etc. For Stripes, it's sort of like our engineering level above... Like a senior engineer, and and a typical day to day is much more uh, architecture work, much more attending meetings, being a tech lead. Uh, some staff engineers get there by being core experts in individual technologies. It can vary, but generally, it's like very senior folks who are experts or leaders in a particular area, be that organizational or technical. Um, it's funny, when, when Derek came in, I was like, my day is mostly interrupt-driven, so I actually don't turn off Slack notifications. For me, how this actually reifies is I spend an awful lot of my week, at least half, usually in meetings ensuring architectural decisions and work is being done, filing Jira tickets, making sure work is groomed for the folks on my team uh, to ensure that like while I'm not really hands-on coding anymore... Uh, all the folks who are sort of in levels three and two and one uh, are able to sort of be set up for success.
2: Why is it that everyone seems to use Jira and also hate it?
1: Uh, I don't hate Jira. Okay. I actually think it's a, a really useful tool I will say this, um, my experience of working with Jira is colored by the fact that we have excellent like, people who are maintaining our Jira instance. I know a lot of people who dislike Jira usually have nobody who is doing the maintenance work, uh, and that is, of course, its own full skill set specialization that I absolutely do not possess, right? But from my perspective, what Jira enables me to do is record work and then move it Uh, to different teams or throughout the organization if that needs to happen right so like if i'm working on a problem and i discover that like actually we need our service networking team to go like modify the console kv store to pull data out of envoy in a different way i can like either move the ticket over to their board or create a sub ticket and file it with them and then like ask their runner It's a way of representing all the work a large organization is trying to do while allowing individual teams to sort of, like, implement a workflow that works for them, right? I will caveat this massively with the fact that, like, I have worked in places where using Jira has been a huge pain, and I think it is a sort of testament to both the IT and TPM uh, functionalities at Stripe that we do not have that painful experience.
0: Are there specific rules around, like, who's allowed to file things and who's responsible for doing that moving? Or is it just... Yeah, talk to me about about that.
1: No, anyone can create a ticket anywhere. Anyone can move a ticket around anywhere. Uh, Cultural principle in line at Stripe is we kind of trust everyone to do the right thing, right? Or at least use their best judgment. Uh, And so we don't tend to have a lot of rules or process, like that would stop you from doing something like that. Right. And so like I have had even the most junior engineers on my team move tickets around where they they think it's appropriate.
2: I love the trust by default stance. I've been at places where something bad happened and the response was like, okay, how do we make sure this never happens again? And er- eroded that default trust over time. And, you know, through a series of paper cuts, things just kind of got more annoying for the people that were never going to embezzle money or you know do something irresponsible with a production (laughs) database or something like that sure it feels like that's a hard thing to fight
1: my view on this is we try very hard to fight bureaucracy here um i think observationally we hear a lot from leadership that the way companies kind of like seize in place is they slowly and slowly implement more and more layers of rules over time of course you need some of that right like i can't just like yolo into a, a, like a production database and look at all of our customers transactions right that that is something i i cannot do unless i have gone through uh like an approval to read customer pii right we actually have a system for enabling engineers to do that that is a two party approval somebody else has to say yes it looks like penelope is doing something legit i'm going to approve her to like go into this database and run these queries right the rules and sort of bureaucracy are kind of like There, where they need to be, but are done in ways that are like deliberately efficient. So, a really good example of this is if you are assigned to a Zendesk ticket, like a customer has filed in for some support and you get assigned to it, you are granted read access to the necessary data to resolve that ticket automatically. You no longer have to go through that two-party approval process, right? Because there's a clear like business reason why you might be pulling this customer's data. And the other thing I'll say is we, have, we do have break glass mechanisms for when we're in incidents or under fire or whatever it might be. But those those ping loudly and widely to, like, ensure there's a good audit trail. And so, like, we kind of have this setup where, like, while we do have these protections, we have ways to move around them as needed, but that, like, you should really, really only do it if you really need to, because it, like, a lot of people are going to get notified this has happened. And I, I think it's a really good setup.
2: What are these interrupts that you... Say constitute a lot of your day.
1: I would say there are a couple of major categories. So one is one is like uh, folks on my team who are like, should I do something like this way or this way? I- I've encountered this problem. Do you have thoughts about it? As a staff engineer, a lot of my job is mentoring folks on my team and like implementation strategies and architectures that are going to work for Stripe. And you know, bringing like the very substantial operational experience that I bring to bear from my times at Google and Digital Ocean into my team, right? My team is, is currently working on building an API gateway component for Stripe, which will eventually route and handle all API traffic at Stripe. And so there's a a lot of uh responsibility there to make sure our systems are robust and reliable, right? And so just just having a, a sort of like strong intuition for like how systems like this should work and being able to bring that to the team is sort of like one bucket which i might i might broadly call sort of like decision making and mentorship and then another one and i would say this is this is the overwhelming majority of where i spend my time is sort of like communicating upwards and outwards so making sure management and leadership uh, within my organization at Stripe know what's going on with our projects uh working with partner teams and staff engineers on those teams to make sure all of our milestones are lining up answering questions about how we're doing uh specific things and so like Frankly, I find that my my role kind of like as a quote-unquote tech lead um is very communicative. Almost everything I'm doing all day is in in one way or another uh communicating either ideas or status to other people within the organization.
0: Do you need a lot of like deep work time in your role then, like if you're thinking about how to advise on architecture, do you feel the effects of like doing a lot of context switching then?
1: Uh I do not get a lot of deep work time. My calendar it usually looks like a block of meetings or like a Swiss cheese of meetings. Uh, ne- neither of which are my my favourites, but uh, it is the realistic thing that is most useful for me to be doing right now. And so I, I kind of act- enjoy it, actually. This is all to say, I typically don't get a lot of deep work time. And usually what I do is, as I have ideas, I, like, eject them into a doc or a Jira card and then, like, ping someone on my team to be like, Here's the idea here's the basic outline i trust you to go run with this and flesh it out i have a lot of inbound uh, and i try to triage it and and move it out as quickly as possible frequently in the sort of like half an hour or, or 45 minutes or hour between things i will knock out you know a 500 word document outlining what i'm currently thinking of being like this is as much context as i can give you right now i'm sorry it isn't more please go run with this right There is a reason this role exists, right? It is, like, sort of necessary in an engineering organization of the size of ours that there are sort of, like, these nodes through which lots of information is flowing and that, like... This is not unique to me. I have maybe a half dozen other people with this exact same role in different areas of the organization that do exactly the same thing. And we just sort of like communicate, I guess, in a ring maybe, or like a polygon shape. I don't know about all of this stuff.
2: In our last podcast, you mentioned that there are annual goals that come down from the top. Does that drive almost all of the sub goals being set by teams is there sort of a broad vision dictated once at the beginning of the year and then most of the work is coming out of that and it's like supporting those things or is there like a more regular kind of update to those things
1: i'm so glad you asked that question because they do get updated throughout the year so it's it's not like these are the six goals and they are set in stone um things have been moved off adjusted expanded scope decreased scope Uh, Throughout the year, I think we've had two or three big updates to the top six uh, since January, and this is this is the first full calendar year that I've been at Stripe, so I I can't especially speak to the year before.
2: When you say the top six, is this is this in a Google Doc somewhere called the top six or something, and everyone has access to it?
1: Yeah. Yes. Literally, these goals are called the top six, and they they are referenced frequently. They are they are referenced in ongoing meetings at I would say almost every level. Uh, of the organization and i i would say that most of the teams i encounter are working actively towards at least one and sometimes many of the of the top six goals this year our top six goals have been very infrastructural and that like as someone who works in sort of in the engine room not directly on products but on infrastructure pieces of stripe i think there is naturally high alignment between my work area and and these goals it is not super clear to me whether folks that are more on in the product side of the house have been so actively involved in top six things but from my perspective i have targeted nearly every piece of work i've done this year like i can directly attribute it to at least one of these top six goals
2: i imagine there's a limit as to how much you can say about what they are are these broad strokes goals like we want to double how much volume we process in a year everyone figure out on how to support this goal, or is it more input, like an input goal than that?
1: They vary in specificity. I think it is probably okay for me to say that goals one and two are security and reliability. And I think we actually talked about this a little bit last time. When we think about the security posture of Stripe, we want to be able to like very confidently say that if we were to show our customers how we actually did security at Stripe, they would feel great about storing their money with us right that is a goal that the entire organization is kind of like rallied around and then and then similar with with reliability right we want you to believe that like something is wrong with your internet connection before you believe that something is wrong with stripe right in that same way that like when facebook went down for several hours everyone was like is my internet broken at first because they couldn't believe facebook was down right those are goals one and two, and so those are fairly broad strokes goals, right? They are literally just the words security and reliability. And then there is some flavor, but, like, that's that's kind of it. And then we have more specific goals. Like, there is a specific system we are trying to ship and build that is is named in the top six, right? Because we believe there are major things we can do as a business that we won't be able to do if we don't ship it, right? And I, I can't tell you what that is. To give you some idea, some of it is, like, These are ambient properties we want Stripe to have. Some of it is like, we need to do this thing because it's strategically important for the company, right? And so some of them are specific. Some of them are sort of more textural.
2: Okay. So like for security, presumably security was already a focus and a goal, I have to imagine. So this wasn't like, oh, and in 2021, security matters. So
1: security was also in the top six the previous year. And I believe the year before that as well. This is to say like, stripe cares very very deeply about having a world class security organisation right and it always has it's not like we suddenly decided in 2021 we were going to start doing security for the first time as i as i sort of mentioned earlier right we find these protections and controls are embedded throughout the organisation right like if i don't have a reason to do so it's truly hard for me to find pii about uh, a customer right including like including things like their email address like If I know your Stripe account ID, I can't necessarily even see the email address of who your Stripe contact is without a reason to do so. The organization cares so deeply about this that these controls are are sort of like baked in everywhere, but they feel extremely ergonomic, right? And that like, when punching through these security holes, like, usually you, you have a business reason to do so, and it makes it incredibly easy if you have that business reason, right? And so I think we have this, like, wonderful trade-off between security and ergonomics, and that's something our, our security org has worked very, very hard on.
2: If not, then the first goal is security, and it's the word security. At some point is someone saying, okay, and what that means this year is these four projects.
1: Yes, yeah. So the the security organization does then have a breakdown and that like other teams are working to support the like breakdown goals that the security organization is working on. I in fact earlier in the year um when I was running working as the tech lead for our Ruby services team did a very substantial amount of work on how Stripe services uh run database calls to help them comply with a new uh security workstream. That we were building and again i'm sorry i can't get into too much detail about that like the security org goes okay security is priority one here are like the several things we want to do from the perspective of having like systemic mitigations for known vulnerabilities that are impacting other large tech companies And then, you know, that might fan out well outside of the security organization to be able to implement them, right? And so that because these are in the top six, security then, and in fact security is number one, they have a lever to go to other teams within the organization and go, security is goal number one. Here's a project we'd like your help on. Can you allocate some engineers to this, right? And, like, this is very much how we decide what we're going to work on is... Do we have spare bandwidth? Are we being uh, tapped to work on top six work streams? And this this gives us a very natural system for decision-making what we're going to do with engineers because we know what's being asked of us relative to company-wide prioritization.
0: So I think every Stripe user in the last couple of months has seen the communication about major changes with the way India processes payments and like new regulations. And I'm curious, like when something like that comes through, I, I imagine there's like, you know, a, a new law has been passed by some, you know, sovereign nation. And they're now imposing these regulations and Stripe has to react in some way. So I'm curious, like how this type of work gets like identified and how it runs through and like reshuffles priorities within the organization. Like, is, are there teams dedicated to reactive work or does it kind of percolate through?
1: Nearly every team in the engineering organization was uh, impacted by that regulation. And to give you some behind the scenes here, we kind of had to fundamentally re-architect how major pieces of Stripe work to be able to comply with that regulation. How data is stored, how data travels between systems. We kind of invented whole new infrastructure concepts to get that done. I have a, I have a peer on my team who is also a staff engineer Uh, who for our organization was sort of embedded with the team we have that was implementing uh, what we call India data locality to get that done. That was like, it was kind of sudden. I don't think we knew we were going to be doing this when we started working on this. It it came out just like all of a sudden and then like massive amounts of engineering resources got poured into this because fundamentally we, we have to be able to process in India, right? And other major financial services companies that you have definitely heard of were just like nope this is too hard we are pulling out right and stripe was like we don't want to do that we want to hit these regulatory deadlines how do we do that to give you an example of why this is complicated right stripe processes for shopify and if you have a shopify customer who is an indian merchant that request is going to originate in one of Shopify's data centers that might be in the United States. And we need to resolve that actually this is data about a customer who is in India and then ensure that that data goes to India. Right. And so here we have a more complicated case where, like, we are working with a platform that is processing on behalf of a merchant located in India. Where we have to be able to resolve that data to that location, right? I believe I am right in saying India data locality became one of the top six. We executed on it, we we passed everything, we said we were good to go, and then it fell off the top six, right? Because it's it's a completed project. And so, yes, very much Lee, and and frequently stuff like this comes up, and there is a clarion call throughout our organization that everyone needs to like shift focus to deal with this, and we do, we get it shipped. Uh, and then we go back more to, like, operations as normal, right? And I know this was, like, a lot of work done by a lot of engineers at Stripe in uh, not a lot of time. This is one of those things where it's like, unlike many engineering projects, you can just go, you know, we'll ship it a quarter later. You can't do that with Indian regulation that comes into force at a specific date, right? And so we had to move... I really cannot emphasize how much work this was like you don't just suddenly assume you're going to need to store all of your data somewhere else and have all of your services like work with it and the work we had to do to re this was was
0: non-trivial it's extremely impressive so like in this case did did somebody just like word came out that this was coming down and did someone kind of take the lead like all right i'm gonna lead this project and then help organize the work to make sure everyone can move really quickly to the deadline
1: we were kind of fortunate that um we had been thinking about multi geographic region availability of stripe like as a as a sort of like abstract future plan already and like we had begun thinking about how we would take pieces of stripe and potentially run them out of multiple geographic locations simultaneously and so we kind of we kind of had a high level plan for this already and and the team the team that owned that sort of led the way they basically like transmogrified their like geographically distributed stripe plan into a how do we get stripe running in india plan and then like were sort of like the natural leaders for this so we actually already had a couple of specific engineers i think one of them even listens to the podcast isaac hi if you're listening take something of a, a charge uh on this uh, and like supported by materially the entire engineering organization of course yeah no we we were in some senses lucky that we already had a plan for the the geographic distribution and but we had never we had never battle tested it right and like for example we had to develop things that were not in that plan very quickly when we discovered there were gaps we built a pseudo version of uh one of our API endpoints internally to be able to, like, quickly transit data from one geo to the other because there are some API endpoints where you need to merge data from both our our American uh, data centers and our Indian data center into a single API response. We had to kind of, like, build tooling to deal with that. And we were very fortunate that we had already been considering this for sort of, again, for reliability reasons, mostly, and that we were then able to execute.
0: Wow. Are you accustomed to operating under like deadlines for tasks or I guess generally speaking when projects are you know scoped out and taken on do they generally come with some kind of deadline or is it sort of like the project is done when it's done
1: Most of my work experience at Stripe has been that we care much more about hitting sort of quality bars than we do about like delivering by a specific date I have seen Numerous high level initiatives within the company moved back simply because engineering has made a decision that, like we just don't think this is reliable enough or we don't you know we don't think that like the product quality is there. You two have both commented that uh, Stripe produces a lot of really high quality stuff. Part of the reason for that is that like if we hit the date we were originally planning to ship something by and it's just not there, we would much rather make something good then get it out the door. I mean, we strive to deliver everything at a super high velocity. And I think for the most part, Stripe is great at releasing products quickly. Fundamentally, I think my view is people care a lot about quality here. And I have seen stuff where we go, we were going to do this massive infrastructure shift this year. We don't think the underlying stuff is there. Let's push it out by a quarter or two. We typically aim to close projects within quarter boundaries just because it makes things... Neat and easy for sort of like tracking purposes, but like, you know, we do make those push decisions all the time.
2: It it seems like Stripe is like roughly doubling every year or so.
1: That has been my lived experience, yes.
2: Yeah. It's quite a testament to be able to respond to that India requirement, not just very quickly, but presumably with a lot of new people. Like, you have to rally a lot of new troops, like rookie troops, to this goal,
1: yeah i mean that is true it's actually really interesting i i'm i'm currently spending some of my time doing some consulting work with a team that is not my like assigned uh team and i think every single person i was introduced to has been at stripe for less than eight months i was like we have a whole team here where the team has been at stripe for less than eight months right um just due to sort of natural reorgs and reformations and and whatever it might be they're shipping stuff right like we, we've created an environment uh where ship and stuff kind of happens right and i th- I think like in particular stripe also cares very deeply about onboarding so for engineers onboarding is a three-week process the first week is with everyone it's not engineering specific it's like what is stripe uh what is an api like what do we do here what are all of our products uh because i mean we have a lot of products now it's not just processing we launched revenue recognition uh which i saw and i was like wow that's that's incredible that first week is just everything you could ever possibly want to know about stripe one of my favorite uh onboarding sessions was anti-money laundering training everyone who works at stripe has to go yearly through anti-money laundering training because we touch a lot of money and we have to make know how to spot this and flag it internally and like what we can say to customers what we can't say to customers because there's all kinds of regulations about that right like we have to know that stuff And then weeks two and three are engineering onboarding, which we run a program we call DevStart, which takes the form of sort of like lecture-y Q&A type sessions, but also you build something. Uh, DevStart projects have mentors who like take projects from their team and they go, this is a nice isolated thing that we could do as a DevStart project and like it would be meaningful to Stripe. I will talk to you about my DevStart project. When I joined... I think this is a little known fact. The the Stripe documentation actually had no validation that it was syntactically correct code in the language it was documented in. We just had a lot of code samples and with no validation. And so, my DevStart team, we implemented validators in all the languages uh, for Stripe's documentation and added them to our CI suite. Uh, And of course, I got asked to do Ruby because I know more about Ruby parsing than nearly any other human being on the planet. We built the system that basically force lints uh, all of the Stripe documentation through every language, right? And that is a extremely valuable thing and a team of four people who are two weeks into Stripe built that in, in two weeks, right? Every engineer at Stripe gets this spin-up where they have the opportunity to learn how to work in Stripe Ruby, how to work in Stripe Java, like what our repositories look like, what our pull request flows like, CI deployment, etc. And so most people come out of that ready to do stuff if you just sort of look at the experience curve the average stripe i think is is four years into their career so also not like super super experienced right and so like a thing I'll, we care about very much Lee, to again come back to something we talked about in the previous episode is developer productivity and velocity right and so we try to make sure the environment that we're working in is incredibly groomed to move uh incredibly quickly
0: someone from um twitter scott peterson asked this question in response to our little call for like questions. He said he was very curious about kind of the developer productivity org. You know, one of the questions he asked, like what kind of custom tooling have they built? And I guess, can you think of like a specific piece of like custom tooling on the developer productivity side that was is really interesting to talk about briefly?
1: Yeah, I, I for sure can. This is a very meta answer. One of the things our developer productivity organization has built is instrumentation tooling for our developer experience. So on every Stripe laptop, we are continuously pushing telemetry on are we blocked on a bundle install or a webpack or like how long did it take to load this this development server or like whatever piece it might be. This telemetry is tagged by user by stripe laptop by model number just like an unbelievable amount of like dimensions and that like i have seen members of the developer productivity org like slice data down to an individual and be like ah the problem was you encountered this like super weird lock condition here in this part of the code that like we're going to go away and fix right because this might become more common one thing i think our developer productivity organization does extremely well is they are so metrics-driven, it's kind of amazing to watch, actually. Like, all of our CI instrumentation is documented by every user who's using it. This applies on laptops, it applies on our dev systems. Like, And so we have this like very powerful 360 view of what a Stripe developer is doing, where are they waiting, where are the painful steps in their workflow, and how can we remediate them? You can, for example, see how long any individual Stripe was waiting for pull request reviews in any given week, month, day, etc. And then that, like, uh, we look at, you know, are those by specific file types, by specific areas of the code base? Do we need to spin up more experienced reviewers in these places? There are, like, calls for reviewers on specific domains sometimes because we're finding slow review velocity on those things. The developer productivity organization takes this, like, unbelievably metrics first approach and that like that means their results are that they can really quickly identify these leverage points and fix them
2: that's pretty incredible i've never heard a company even come close to that like penelope you are spending a lot of time waiting for bundle install to run and we noticed this and can help you that's just unbelievable i guess if you really care about fast (laughs) right exactly 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 so I asked you a question like this last time, but if uh-huh. if you were starting a company yourself and wanted to steal some of these ideas, like I guess this is just sort of a focus that you would start from the beginning, which is like caring about the average developer productivity. Like, how well are you spinning up an engineer? How productive are they once they're there? What is blocking them? That's a that's a thing you can ask before you are a full team of experts with telemetry and whatnot. Yes, it's sort of more the the philosophy than the specific actions.
1: I think so. I actually have a a sort of groomed observation about this. It's it's something I've been thinking about for a while. Most organizations are not large enough to be able to budget for a like good developer productivity organization, right? We we estimate at Stripe that it's somewhere between I think it's twenty five and fifty engineers per head in the developer productivity organization is about the right trade off, and that like very notably say neither of your businesses are 25 engineers right and so like it's notionally hard for me to like say here's like a set of things you should do that will optimize this versus just like doing exactly what you're already doing right i think that's an unknowable counterfactual i think there's a great SaaS space in building like developer productivity organization as a service right by my Groomed Ruby language server by my like CI solution that where we can actually do this diagnosis for you and like ship ship speed ups to you the average developer uh, as a product. My sort of take on this, and given that this is the Art of Product podcast, is like I think there's a really killer product here that I don't think anyone is super tapping into in this space right now.
0: Yeah, because that often does seem to be the trajectory of like larger companies kind of do these things in house, figure out you know, all the, the ways to build an optimal thing. And then eventually someone will kind of break off and decide to, you know, plant a stake in the ground and build a startup around those learnings. Uh, It seems like, in a sense, working for Stripe could be a great way to, um, (laughs) to seed in your mind, like if you're an entrepreneurial type of person to really recognize, you know, how to solve, solve problems in a really good way and potentially productize those
2: things. Tell me more about how you see this working like i I mean I'm, I think it's a fascinating idea i mean I, it feels like to some extent, just literally, if you just went to a company and asked all the engineers what is slowing you down like when when are you wasting time? that feels like you would have a bunch of insight fall out out of that but is there is there more of a product in your head that is that comes out of
1: this? One thing that doesn't exist today that would not be super hard to throw together is like a a language server here here with like capital l capital s uh like the language server protocol server that can like begin to measure these things when you click run tests how long is it between that button click and when the build completes and when the build completes and when the tests are done executing right an instrumented ci solution that tells you you know these phases of your build are are the slow ones and and then and then to me it's it's not just like that measurement but then also like suggested fixes or even implementing the fixes right if i am the ci runner i can do that if i am the language server maybe there are tricks i can do to run incremental compilation or like uh pulling gems or like you know just all of these sorts of all of these sorts of things i think it's sort of like licensed access to a suite of really cohesive tooling to help you with your developer experience
2: i feel like it's very tempting to think of developer productivity as mostly a function of the quality of the developer themselves. Where it's like, oh, this person is fast, this person is not as fast, the first person is a better engineer. And I love the flipping of what about your tooling or your processes is making people slower than they have to be? How could you increase the median even given differences in skills?
1: As we mentioned uh, last time I was on, for the longest time I was a super hardcore Vim user. I spent a week using Visual Studio Code, and I was like, my life is a lie. Just straight up, like the amount of like visual additional visual information about your source code that's like presented to you is was unbelievable to me. Like the first couple of times I did it, I found it confusing because it was so much more information, and I was like, this is barely scratching the surface. We write text file like fundamentally we use the same format that we did in the 1980s to write programs today right and that like some of the ux's around this are definitely better now than they they were but not uniformly in in popular programming languages and i had this sort of moment where i was like i have been lying to myself like this this workflow is not bad be- I, like I, I installed the vim integration and it's by no means perfect but it's good enough uh and i was like Oh, I have, like, much better jump to source, I can, like, click a test to run it, and that's, like, sometimes much faster, and, like, I can, I have a debugger right there. Like, have you ever tried to debug something interactively with, like, a Vim plugin? They all suck. Uh, like, I've tried them all, and they're all terrible. My view on this is that there is a such a large, unscratched surface area in making developer productivity better through better tooling for example i've been using github copilot a lot recently and my observation is that uh in a language like ruby or python it's like kind of okay and then i used it in rust where you have all of this additional type information and it's just like right almost every time including really complicated stuff like doing a a distributed thread map right like taking a very large array of data and mapping some function over it Copilot just wrote that for me, right? Because all of that information is there. And so, like, you don't need Stripe's developer productivity organization. Not that we should do this, but, like, if we were to take Stripe's developer productivity organization and put them in Tuple, like, would Tuple start shipping more quickly after, like, three weeks? Probably. These problems are very similarly shaped. I've also spent a long history of my life working in developer tooling with RSpec and Ruby format, and so, like, I just kind of, like, been having these ideas.
0: I had this experience where I upgraded my operating system and like half my stuff broke. So I had a couple of VS Code plugins broke and my like Git shell completions, I like couldn't get them to work. I uninstalled, reinstalled. I can't remember what I did to finally get it working again. During that like two day period where a lot of my stuff was half broken, but I like was still in the middle of projects and didn't want to like stop stop the world and fix all of these things. It was terrible. Like, and I just realized how much, even just a small thing is being able to get like the branch name completed in my shell when I hit tab was like it slowed me down a ton to have to like go and like copy paste out of a list or you know just some other like slow mechanism or just type all the characters myself and that does make me wonder like I feel like I've reached a pretty good place where I'm I'm pretty highly productive in my environment but there's always that lingering question of like but could it be even better like are there things I'm missing out on I've sort of become like immersed in this really good tooling the TypeScript. VS Code plugin is insanely good. Like, as I'm writing JavaScript, if I'm like unsure what the result of this big old long function is going to be, I just hover over the result and it tells me what it computes the type to be based on everything. Like, it's amazing.
1: You know, we have we have some of this in Sorbet. So Sorbet actually does ship a language server for Ruby and it will begin to hydrate some of that information. It's it's certainly not perfect there's a lot of room to go. It's certainly good enough for our use cases. And of course, we have like obscenely high Sorbet coverage inside our, our, our code base, right? But like if, you, if you're applying it to a code base that has never benefited from that, you won't you won't see as much of it, right? And and like, I love chocolate. I love peanut butter for Ruby, where like Rails is still a very fast way to deliver a software as a service, right? But like there is no super unbelievably high quality developer tooling for Rails. It just kind of doesn't exist. Um, and so, like, I think in particular there's a there's a big gap here to do something like that.
2: I'm so bullish on types long-term.
1: Yep. yep. I have to say. Types in Ruby really blew me away. When I'm working with with teams at Stripe, I tend to ask them to put Sorbet into what's called strict mode. So Sorbet has a couple of levels that you can set the typer at. But in strict mode, you have to declare types on every function and every instance variable. And that is enough To basically mean you have types on everything, or at least like thing goes in, thing goes out types. The end result of that is like it's just much easier. My view is it's just much easier to work with Ruby when you have types.
2: I'm just pretty fully convinced of the general idea of like having the computer help make sure the code is correct is the way forward and is the axis on which we can continue to like push and get tons of value from. And this whole like manage it all yourself in a fully dynamic world. Is not.
1: I might encourage you to think one degree further than just correctness. You are attaching more information about how your program works at a time that is not execution, right? And so, by having more information available, it's not just about correctness, but it's also about navigation and understanding and what what tools can provide to you. For example, with Sorbet, even if a type isn't declared on a variable, you can typically say tell me the type of this, right? And it will be like, it's this. It just knows. Or even jump to type declaration. And that always works. If you've ever used C tags in Vim on Ruby, and you, you like, jump to definition, like, how many times have you gone to active record base save, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like how many times, right? Whereas with, when you have the reified type, you, you get to the right place. And I mean, this is actually how we build the compiler, um, is that, the compiler uses Sorbet type information to do compilation, because it knows what the types are going to be, and so it can replace Ruby method calls with C calls. If it knows you're running over an array instead of having to call enumerable each and, and using like the special uh opt send with block method in the Ruby VM, it can it can just replace that with a C for loop, right? Which is which compiles down to something the Intel branch predictor knows how to execute, you know, unbelievably quickly. It's not just about correctness there are other benefits to having types within a system that i think are at least as or more valuable than the correctness itself
0: really helps with fast
1: (laughs) (laughs) it so does It, it it really does yeah
2: anything else we should cover
1: I don't know, <laughs> that was a lot. Um, was a lot. Um, I will gently plug that very specifically, my team at Stripe is hiring. Uh, if anything I have said has been interesting to you and you want to work on interesting infrastructure backend problems uh, at Stripe, uh, you can reach out to me.
2: What does your team do in a sentence or so?
1: Uh, my team is is called the API Services team, and we build the underlying services that product engineers at Stripe build our APIs on top of. So today, that is one very large monolithic Ruby service, and we are moving towards a world where there is like a, a routing layer that we will own, and then product teams will own individual API services that they are actually operating and maintaining, so that uh, we kind of have this nice separation between deploys of a specific product aren't deploys of the entire API.
2: What was the name of that monolith again? You said it last time.
1: It's BAPI, B-A-P-I.
2: Oh, okay. I thought it was something different. Like pay, uh, pay, server ser- or
1: pay server is the name of our ruby monorepo and there are there are other ruby services within pay server right so for example uh admin is the internal dashboard we use to do all kinds of management tasks with our customers the dashboard uh is in there that that's in a service called manage
2: i love pay server as a name because i can just totally picture like patrick or somebody typing get init pay server <laughs> <You> know, uh, <laughs> so many years ago, and uh, there it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't actually know what the the history of the the pace of a monorepo is, but the the subtitle in our internal GitHub instance uh, is slash dev slash payments, which was oh, the okay. original name of uh, Stripe, the company. Uh, little known uh, history fact there.
2: Mm-hmm. Nice, <laughs> awesome. Well, Penelope, thank you so much for coming by and sharing yeah. some knowledge. This, this is awesome again.
1: Yeah. I think I think you actually cut me off saying my email address. So just oh, to say sorry. it, it's uh Penelope at stripe.com.
2: Ooh, got the got the first name.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's not not that many Penelopes in the tech industry, uh, it turns mm. out.
2: Well, having pair programmed with you and, and been friends for a long time, I can totally recommend working with you. I think. Thank uh, you. People Thank would you. enjoy that quite a bit. So Yeah. All right. I co-plug your hiring. <laughs>
1: Yeah, of cool. course. Well, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for coming. Yeah, uh, notes of the show, please. Notes for the show can be found at arterproductpodcast dot com. Thanks for listening. See ya. Goodbye.